0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to That Really Happened, the podcast that gives you the most intriguing real estate stories. In this episode, I interviewed Jeremy Roll, a very experienced passive investor from LA, where I live, and his story is interesting because it's a story about what seems to be a very solid and safe investment that took a very unexpected turn.
1: So that's already a 1% risk. What made this even more interesting is that you've got another 1% risk, which is Our loan was due that fall. Literally two 1% risks happening at the same time.
0: So before we dive into the story, I want to give you a little bit of a background on our guest today. Jeremy has been a full-time investor for over 10, 11 years now and has invested in more than 70 deals worth over half a billion in real estate and business assets. So when it comes to real estate, Jeremy has seen it all and that makes him a very interesting guest. Through this story, you'll hear about how Jeremy dealt with a completely failed investment. So let's begin, shall we? Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, unbelievable real estate stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hi Jeremy, how are you?
1: Good, good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Of course. I'm excited to have you on my show. And today we actually have a really compelling
1: story. So I've been investing in passive, mostly passive cash flow opportunities, mostly commercial real estate, passive cash flow opportunities since 2002. And I eventually rotated all my money out of stocks and bonds into cash flow while I was in the corporate world. Actually, during the time I was actually working at Disney headquarters, in Burbank, California, and then also Toyota headquarters was my last job in, in LA, in Los Angeles. And so I've been investing in these passive cash flow opportunities for about 16 years, but full-time for about 11 years now. And uh, all I'll say for now is that, you know, without trying to sound like an infomercial, is that the cash flow just truly has changed my life. So I'm definitely lucky to have discovered that.
0: Amazing. And I think being a full-time passive investor is something that a lot of investors are trying to get to. So I think that's Definitely um, fascinating that you that you were able to make that your full time occupation. So I, I would like to kind of start diving into the story, and, and your story is really interesting. And I think our listeners, both operators, so syndicators, and also passive investors, can enjoy listening to and can also learn from from that experience.
1: This story is interesting because actually learned quite a good number of lessons from it. It's actually, I think, the only foreclosure I've ever been through as an investor. And I want to just preface by saying I'm not 100% sure about that because I've been in over 100 opportunities. So I haven't really thought about it carefully, but it feels like the only foreclosure I've been through. It's actually the classic example of what I, I always tell people, Like, there's 20 different 1% risks, You know, 1% just being a term I'm using, that can happen when you invest in any opportunity, active or passive. And you just have to be aware of the fact that those risks are always out there. They're not really predictable. And you have to be comfortable with the idea that the risk can come to be, be it very low probability for each one. And so this is a really great story of a, one, a 1% a one percent risk coming to be. An operator that I invested with as a passive investor who handed it extremely well, which we'll get into.
0: I would actually like to take kind of a step back. If you can just talk a little bit about how you knew or how you got to know the operator, what was the investment and kind of set up the stage or the background for the story.
1: Basically I tend to invest in what are called syndications, which is, which basically means that um, there's structured opportunities where, where the operator is pooling a lot of investors together into an LLC or a company For the purpose of buying, typically it's a commercial real estate property, I also invest in uh, residential real estate and all different aspects and I invest in non real estate things like ATM machines and other things. But um, So for today, basically I was looking for investments in commercial real estate on the passive side and my focus is primarily cash flow. So I actually got into all this type of investing because I was looking for predictability and this happened after the dot com crash back in 2002. I was really fed up with the stock market for two reasons. One was more obvious, which is the volatility of the stock market. You know, I'm a really low risk, slow and steady guy. So the idea of it being up and down 30% a year was not a good fit for me. But more importantly, I decided like the biggest problem I had with it is a lack of predictability for my retirement account. In other words, at the time, not knowing where the stock market would be in a day, a year, 10 years, 20 years, that bothered me the most. So I got into this passive cash flow focus of investing for more predictability, which means that I tend to invest in opportunities that let's say are 80 to 100% occupied, stabilized, kind of uh, may or may not have any value-add upside w- whatsoever that's optional. And so the concept is that I want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, not much has changed, have a diversified tenant base, and then hopefully have a pretty high probability of hitting within a certain range the quarterly cash flow distributions that are projected. Um, and I actually now live off the cash flow since 2007. So That requirement of the cash flow being predictable is particularly important for me, right, across all the opportunities that I invest in. So with all that in mind, I was looking for those types of opportunities. And the way I was finding them back then and still till today is that, unfortunately, most of those opportunities are not allowed to be publicly marketed. Most of the syndicated structures do not allow for public marketing. Without getting into too much of the legalese, there are exceptions, but just for the purpose of this discussion, most of the time you have to find these through networking because the operator is not allowed to go advertise these or publicly market them and not even able to mention them in a meeting if they're, let's say, a presenter or a panelist. I mean, those are all not legal. So I found the opportunity through networking, through real estate meetings in Los Angeles. This was back in the mid uh, to later 2000s. And so I ended up being referred to the operator, um, spoke with them, got to know them. They're actually local Los Angeles. In fact, normally I'm careful with sharing operator names and all this. I haven't even asked their permission, but I'm going to mention them because I thought the way they handle this is fantastic. So I definitely would recommend dealing with them. The name of the operator is H properties. You'll see what I'm talking about when you hear the whole story. And then I'm more than happy for, you know, to mention their name because the way they handle things. So that was initially um, how I found them. And I think that answers your question, right?
0: Yeah. And, and I want to go back to that moment when you said, um, to that point, you mentioned that you were introduced to them and then you you started to get to know them. How exactly were you introduced to them and, and what did you do to get to know them better? Trusting the operator, the syndicator, is a big part of the predictability, as you mentioned before, because part one part is... Is basically to have a solid investment based on your criteria, and the other part is to know that you're going with a trusted syndicator. That's another part of the predictability. So I'm just curious um, how you were introduced to them exactly, and and what did you do to get to know them better?
1: I'm going to give you my standard answer in that you know I've I've had ten year ten more years of learning since I met them, so I'm going to give you kind of what, just generally what I do, and also. It happened to have been that they were located in the Los Angeles area. So if I wanted to meet with them right away, it was actually fairly easy, right? So I remember meeting them actually at the Starbucks the first time. But normally, I don't do that. Normally, I might be dealing with an operator who's out of state. And so it's a different process, clearly, because of that. From my perspective as a passive investor, it's actually more important who I'm making a bet on. And this story really explains why this is true. It's more important who you're making a bet on in terms of personality. and and everything else that comes with that versus the actual opportunity. I'm located in Los Angeles, and I like to tell people, if I invested in the best building that was 100% occupied in the middle of Rodeo Drive, which is like prime, prime real estate in Beverly Hills, and somebody, the operator ran that building to the ground, didn't manage it well, and the tenants left, um, then essentially, it doesn't matter that that building was in the best location and had the best tenant base to start, we would end up having to give the keys back to the bank, get foreclosed, and we have nothing as investors. So I really, truly believe that who you're making the bet on is more important than the opportunity. Now, as far as the opportunity itself and its structure and its business plan and its location, that's all very important too. But who you're making a bet on is critical when you're going to be a true passive investor in a syndicated type structure. What I do is I'll read the opportunity and I try to read between the lines. So I'm looking for an operator who is conservative, who is under-promising, hoping to over-deliver, to build long-term relationships with investors versus the kind that is actually just trying to make the numbers look as good as possible to attract investors, but may or may not hit those, and therefore is kind of doing a, you know, make this look as good as possible, find investors, move on to the next. And then one more thing, which is really critical, which unfortunately I find most investors don't do, but it saved me multiple times, is I always do background checks. On the managers, I do it on each manager of the um, for managing member of the LLC, and that's at a critical step. That I, I, in fact, if I invest with somebody multiple times, every time I invest with them, I redo the background check in case something else comes up that wasn't there before from a year ago, um, and so that that's critical as well.
0: What is included in that in this uh, background check?
1: Well, so do you look at
0: previous uh, deals. Do you look at you do you even you know check criminal or
1: so i happen to have signed up with tlo like tom larry organization tlo.com which is owned by transunion which is one of the top 2 i would say most thorough sources you can use accurant a c c u r i n t like tom that.com is, is also really thorough that's owned by lexis and one of the things i do before i run a background check most of the time especially the first time on somebody is i will ask them For their name, date of birth, and home address to make sure they're willing to share that for me, and also um, I will—I don't ask for social security or anything like that. And then I also ask them if there's anything I need to know prior to running the check, like so that I give them a chance to tell me up front if there's a problem or something, and you know, because what I found in the past is sometimes things flag and there's really good explanations for them, and I like giving that person the opportunity. But it also gives you the opportunity if they don't say anything because they're hoping that their DUI from 20 years ago won't show up, you can circle back with them when you find it and then you kind of know that someone's willing to hide things from you. And just to clarify, like the fact that I was able to meet them in person before actually meeting them at the property, because usually if it's an out-of-state operator, what I'll do is, because I'll never invest with somebody without meeting them in person because this all comes down to like a gut check, who you're making the bet on. So usually if I'm, I'm meeting with someone from out of state, it'll be at the property to walk the property and get their perspective on the property and have them drive me throughout the area to get their perspective on the area too. But um, in this case, I was able to meet with this operator H properties in the area and I met them at Starbucks and what we did at that Starbucks was I actually had them walk me through the PowerPoint they'd already created for this opportunity so I can get a really thorough view of their perspective on literally every slide.
0: Do you feel comfortable with them? Did you feel that you could trust them? What, what was your feeling when, while you were sitting with them and, and reviewing the the deal, the opportunity?
1: Yeah, I definitely felt like comfortable with them, felt like I could trust them. And, you know, in the end of the day, really before investing in any opportunity, I do a kind of a full gut check taking everything into account. Background checks, spreadsheets, questions I've asked over the phone, in-person meeting. It's all about the gut check from my perspective in the end of the day to make sure you're comfortable with somebody. And so definitely had a good gut check from that meeting um, without any major flags. By the way, this operator is very unusual because they had owned 17, I think it was 17 student housing apartments, which is their focus. And they had been operating for many years at that point. But um, they rarely actually had investors um, into their deals outside of true friends and family. They actually most owned most of their deals themselves. So um, it wasn't a typical syndicator who had been building up their portfolio by fundraising from outside, Um, which, which actually is an important point to get into because um, what that meant to me was a lot of things, but probably the most important one coming to mind is that they definitely had a pretty decent net worth, right? And I think you'll see as we get through this story that one of the things that allowed this story to take place and end up with a positive outcome was for the operator actually having a, a pretty re, a good network. Because what I've learned over the years is that while this isn't a requirement by any means, I find that when operators have higher networks, they can come in and fix problems more easily in some cases. And just give you some examples. I'm not going to give away the example for this story because we haven't gone through it. But for example, if for whatever reason there is a need for cash that was unforeseen, not budgeted. Rather than having to do a cash call, a higher net worth operator, maybe they need 250000 500000 could come in and actually make a loan directly to the company themselves, potentially at a very low interest rate or no interest rate, to help investors versus having to go and actually do an entire cash call, right? just for example. So that's one of many examples where someone who's higher net worth can really help to uh, bridge problems or challenges that come up. Now... You have to be dealing with the right personality for that to happen, right? Just because someone has a high net worth doesn't mean they're gonna do the right thing or do things to help them well. So it's a combination of the two, but that net worth piece can definitely be helpful sometimes.
0: So we listened to Jeremy's thorough process that helps him vet the sponsor and the deal. At this point, Jeremy met with a sponsor in LA at a coffee shop, got to know him, went over all the details, and then made up the decision to write him a check and enter the deal as his partner. And for a while, everything went well. The sponsor bought the property and it was cash flowing for several years, just like Jeremy anticipated.
1: And let me just frame the scenario of what I was investing into, okay? So we were investing in about a 300-unit apartment building, the first property right across from a state university in Michigan. The property was, for all intents and purposes, 99% occupied. I don't remember the exact occupancy rate. Very high occupancy. Student housing works seasonally, meaning that typically a students in there for either nine up to twelve months, and then the property turns each year. Some students stay, some t- students leave because they're graduating and they move. And so you have this strong um, rental season that happens between, say, February, March, and into the summer, and then hopefully by August you're full, and then you know that's when school starts. Um, and so we were taking over this property, and we had about two years or so or three years left on a, um, a loan. So we were assuming a loan at actually really favorable terms. That loan assumption, there's always a risk to a loan assumption, which is one of the great learnings because if you have a shorter term, you're going to have to refinance within two, three years if you're going to keep the property, right? Because the loan is going to come due. So that's actually one of the key things I can mention up front of, of the scenario. And you know, since then, I'm much more careful about loan assumptions, regardless of whether it's a good deal, or regardless of whether it's highly occupied. And you'll see why in this story, even though it was a 1% situation, it's still very interesting. So um, so we, we was investing in this really stabilized deal, favorable um, loan terms, strong operator. Operator was co-investing a very high percentage. I can't remember, unfortunately, the exact amount, but let's say the operator probably co-invested you know, fifty to seventy percent of the equity, which is highly unusual, which is great from an investor's perspective because you're really well aligned with the operator at that point, obviously unusually well. And so it was a great scenario. Uh, by the way, operator with already operating seventeen similar buildings, fantastic location, strong schools, strong enrollment, very high population base. Like location could not have been better. From uh, which is ironic with the way the story goes. Um, at the property. So I was actually really happy to be getting into it and really strong cash flow.
0: So you feel pretty good about investing with that specific operator. You've done your due diligence on the property, on the deal, and you feel pretty comfortable like this is a solid deal and and you write the check, you invest with the sponsor. And, and, and then what happens?
1: Actually, everything went perfectly well for the first couple of years. Um, got quarterly checks, quarterly reports, we're pretty much as projected, you know, and frankly, with student housing, if you're in the right location, you're very highly occupied, unless you've got unforeseen expenses or deferred maintenance that wasn't properly budgeted, it's going to be pretty smooth sailing like at the right school, you know, in the right location. That's one of the things I like about student housing is that it's it's really very stable, right? Because if you're highly occupied each year, and you're looking for cash flow, that's a great scenario. Student housing, one of the challenges to it is that the expense ratios are a little bit higher than typical apartment because there's a little bit more wear and tear and the units may turn more often. Overall, it was really as expected for the first couple of years. Um, that's actually where everything got, everything changed though, was for after that first couple of years. So picture this. So we are in the spring and um, we're in a relatively cold climate with snow. And the operator gets a letter from the city saying, look, we have to repair the bridge to campus because there was actually a bridge that went from this property, which is the first property across from this campus, to school. And they said, we got to repair the bridge. We can only do in the summer months. so We're going to repair the bridge this summer. It's going to be closed, but we're very aware that there are students here and we promise that the bridge will be open in time for the fall school season. So that's kind of challenge number one, right? And the one, so that's already a 1% risk, right? What made this even more interesting is that you've got another 1% risk, which is our loan was due that fall. Literally two 1% risks happening at the same time, right? So the odds of the bridge closing and needing repairs where you are at that particular time, very low. Odds of a loan coming due at the same time, very low. Put the two together, you have a bit of a recipe for a challenge.
0: And I would like just a second just to stop you right here. Um, Just to make sure that I understand, the bridge you were talking about was, it was a connector between the property and and school, basically, so they could not commute or, you know, walk to school without the bridge?
1: Exactly. It was just a bridge like any others where if it was closed, you could not access school. So the uh, at least not directly very easily, right? I'm sure there was another bridge, but I don't know how far it was. So, And and by the way, it clearly wasn't around the corner because it's had a big impact on the property. So, But interestingly, the city was very well aware of the impact of the bridge closing. So they were specifically doing it outside of um, school dates. Where we had a challenge is that students became aware of the fact the bridge was closing. And when it came time for them to renew their leases and get new leases,
0: None of them were really
1: sure that the bridge was going to be reopened in time for school. It's what the city said, but they didn't know that with certainty.
0: At this point in our story, Jeremy learns from the sponsor about the issue with the bridge. The same bridge that allows students to access the school. The same school that was the only reason they rented an apartment at the building to begin with. And each day, fewer and fewer students are renewing their leases. The building is starting to become more and more empty by the day.
1: Well, what happened is that um, we went from, say, 99 or 100% occupied to 60% occupied that fall. And the challenge, and by the way, that would have been okay. That would have taken us probably to break even or close to break even. That would have been manageable for a year. And then we would have gone back up to probably 99 or 100%, assuming the bridge opened in time and everything else. That wasn't the problem, actually. The big problem was that the bridge closed and then reopened, but also that we had the loan due that fall. So when the loan is due, what happens is that an appraiser comes in to appraise the property. And the problem is that they were appraising the property based on a 65% occupancy rate because that was the timing of when the loan was due. And so the loan gets appraised at the 65% occupancy rate, And in addition, the operator was trying to negotiate a one-year extension on the loan because they knew with the bridge being reopened that we were going to be back up to probably 99% occupied the next year. And then the appraisal at that time would have been eons better. But the bank was not willing to extend the loan probably because they wanted the property. I don't see any other reason. Because the bridge closed, because we went to 65% occupancy and because the loan was not allowed to be extended, the operator really had two choices. They can either come up with some additional capital and it was a pretty big margin to refinance the property to potentially have a really bad tenure, you know, or a certain number of year loan they were stuck with, or they could have allowed for the foreclosure. Now the interesting part about the foreclosure is that when they took this deal on, it was a partial recourse loan, which means that there was several hundred thousand dollars of recourse against the operator directly, where if the loan was foreclosed, they would have to come out of pocket for that money on top of whatever losses they had with their own equity they invested. So this was going to be very expensive for the operator, no matter which way you look at it, putting aside the fact that they had the majority of the equity deal to begin with. And so that was a scenario that was being faced.
0: And can you explain to uh, the listeners... What is kind of the connection between the occupancy and, and renewing the loan? So how does, from your experience, how does a lender look at a loan? And what do you think that they, that they had in mind when they saw that occupancy was as low as 64%? Um,
1: I can't really speak on behalf of the bank because I never really spoke to them. And also keep in mind, I'm just a passive investor, so I don't have the experience of dealing with refinancings directly. But let's say you're used to taking a 65% loan to value and your property is worth 10000000 million, you're going to get a loan for $6.5 $6. 5 million, right? What happens if your property is only worth $6 million and then you need to get a loan? You're only getting a loan for like $4 million in that case, roughly. So um, if you're trying to refinance another loan that was roughly 5 or $6 million with a $4 million loan, that's a big problem because there's a gap of a million or two that you're not, you're not getting to, because you're refinancing at a much lower value.
0: So basically the occupancy is directly related to the value of the property because it's it affects the income of the property. And so that's, you know, usually when it comes to commercial real estate and especially multifamily, looking at the income is a major uh, factor in determining the value of the property.
1: Exactly. And so the other challenge is something called a debt coverage ratio or debt coverage service uh, ratio, which basically... The banks require a specific minimum ratio between the net operating income and the debt that you actually have, the the debt payments associated with the income. And so, if you don't have enough income, so if you have a 30% occupied building and you're trying to get a big loan, you're not going to have enough income to cover the size of the loan and the debt service payments from the loan. And so, similarly, in this scenario, right? If you have income from 65% occupancy to set of 100, you're only going to be able to cover a much smaller loan and the payments associated with that loan. And so that's where you get kind of crunched down to a much smaller loan. And that's where you have that gap between what you have to pay off as the current loan that's due versus the amount you're going to get to refinance and cover paying off that previous loan.
0: Got it. And and I actually want to take you back a little bit to the moment that you realize that all of a sudden there's an issue with the bridge and the moment that you realize that actually we have a problem with the loan because occupancy has dropped. How did you, I mean, how was that communicated with you? Did the operator call you? Did he send an email? I mean, can you? if you could, can just go back to that moment where you're discovering that something might go wrong,
1: I think this is how I learned about it. And again, it was over a decade ago, so I'm hoping I remember it correctly. I think we all got a notice in the quarterly report that they were having this challenge and that they were trying to negotiate a loan extension with the bank, which actually seemed completely reasonable to me and what I actually assumed would be the normal outcome in this scenario. Um, And so that's how we were notified. Um, We were definitely given an explanation of um, the fact that the bridge was being closed and that the occupancy rates were dropping. And obviously the loan was coming due. And so we were definitely, um, the communication from the operator basically brought us up all to speed. Now, I didn't necessarily get a separate email from the operator, like the moment they find that found out necessarily from what I can remember. But frankly, like I wouldn't necessarily expect them to because from the point in which they found out the bridge was closing until the loan was due was was I think like six months. And so they had a whole number of months to even... Um, upfront to try to handle it, along with potential extensions, both monthly and, you know, annual extensions they were going to look at doing. So there was a lot of time between when they found out and for them to try to manage it.
0: Got it. And that moment that you find out that something might go wrong with this opportunity, do you remember how you felt at that moment?
1: To be honest with you, I didn't expect the outcome that happened with that initial information because... I truly expected, like the operator did, that they were just going to extend the loan. And that, honestly, at that time, the expectation I had as an investor is that maybe we'll have no cash flow for a year. Um, It wasn't like, okay, we're going to lose the entire property, right? Um, So it was a different, it wasn't like a catastrophic expectation. And it was clearly like, oh, wow, it's pretty amazing this happened. But it seems like we're going to be okay. They're negotiating things. I'm just going to wait to find out more.
0: You mentioned that there were kind of three options of what the sponsor could have done to fix the problem.
1: Well, at least it looked like there were options of what they could have done, right? Um, in the end of the day, they were kind of forced into a foreclosure from a financial perspective, and primarily because the bank would not grant an extension, which was still, even to, to this day, I'm surprised. Um, And really the only justification I can come up with, including the operator was just that they wanted the property back. And then the bank knew they make a lot more money by taking the property back, waiting to get it reoccupied and then reselling it to somebody. So there was a lot of profit there for somebody. Um, And so, um, so anyway, so that's what ended up happening. And this process of the foreclosure, um, The operator negotiating what that meant exactly and all this took a number of months uh, because they were trying to negotiate a loan extension. Um, They were trying to negotiate what it meant for them from a recourse perspective as far as how much money they were going to have to pay. And all this was kind of happening on the operator side. Now, as a passive investor, I was just waiting for updates. But, you know, one of the great things about being a passive investor is that you're not dealing with any of this, right? This is well beyond the story of like, you know, your, you know, your property manager calls you to tell you you have to replace the toilet. Do you want to pay $300 for the toilet or not? This is a whole other ballgame, right? There were attorneys involved and all kinds of stuff. Um, so we all waited as investors to find out what was going to happen essentially for several months.
0: Were you anxious during that time, knowing that the property that you've just invested in or invested in a couple of years ago is going in, into foreclosure?
1: Yes, I was definitely anxious but one of the key things about what I do and I'm kind of a little bit biased about this I, I like to call myself like hyper diversified so I've invested in over 100 opportunities in 16 years and I'm currently in over 70 so you know if if one like if something happens like this to me today as soon as we get off this this podcast and I find out that I'm losing my investment in one opportunity I'm not going to be happy but it's also not going to have a huge effect on me right and so it takes a long time to get really highly diversified, but I, I've been able to do that over the years. And even back then, I had investing at that point. I think I had been investing for about seven years. And so I was pretty well diversified at that point. So um, it wasn't like I was worried about losing you know, half of my net worth or anything. And frankly, to be honest, I would be highly concerned for any past investor if they put themselves in that situation. So it was. I was not happy, but I wasn't like ho- overly anxious about it.
0: Now the story takes a surprising twist. It was something that the sponsor decided to do, something that was extremely rare in the real estate investing scene.
1: Yeah, so what happened is that we got a letter from them explaining what was going on. At first, I actually called them to get a little bit more explanation of the exact story, but they basically told us they were gonna keep us posted because they were looking at ways to kind of they felt very bad. So they were looking at ways to help investors um, throughout the situation. And what's really interesting and unique about the story, and and by the way, it goes back to what I mentioned before about the net worth of the operator, is that what the operator ended up deciding to do for investors to help them with no legal requirement whatsoever, by the way, they could have just gotten foreclosed, investors could have lost their equity, they could have lost their equity, they could have lost their recourse loan and that would have been the end of the day, right? Legally, that's really what the outcome should have been without any additional action from the operator. But what made this story so great and, and what made it such a positive outcome is the operator said, I feel really bad for the investors. This shouldn't have happened. Um, this never happened to us before. And ultimately because they wanted to do the right thing and they could afford to, they basically um, told all of us that they were working with their attorneys and their accountant to transfer our equity ownership from this property that we had which was no longer ours, to another property they own themselves, where they're the only equity investor, I believe, that was another property, first property across from another state university campus in another state of a similar size and similar type they already owned. And so what's really amazing is that this operator went through all this heartache, lost the property, lost their own equity, lost a recourse loan, and yet still – kind of did what they could for investors and spent about a one-year transition of working with attorneys and accounts to figure out the best way to structure it to get investors' equity put into their, their other deal and replace their equity. So they were actually coming out of pocket their own equity in the other deal and giving it to investors, even though they've already lost all this other money, which is pretty amazing. And again, nobody asked them of this as far as I know. And this was just simply like, You made a bet on the right person who could afford to do the right thing. So it's a combination of they could afford to do the right thing and they also decided to do the right thing, right? Because we talked about that before. Just because you have the money, it doesn't mean you're going to do the right thing. When I say the right thing, I'm not even sure that I consider it the right thing. It's just a really great thing to do, right? I don't know if there's a right or wrong because as investors, we invested equity into this one deal. And if it went wrong because of a 1% risk, as far as I'm concerned as an investor, it's a risk that I took. I don't expect any operator to take my equity and bring it in some way to replace it because it's not, I don't consider it their fault. Right. So uh, unforeseeable circumstance, I didn't expect them to be insured against the bridge closing. Like it's, to me, it's not reasonable that I should have expected that, you know, every single 1% risk is covered. So if it was a total loss, I would have been bummed and I would have moved on and I wouldn't have considered it the operator's fault. But they came in and kind of went above and beyond and ended up replacing everyone's equity. So in transition, we ended up waiting about a year for the attorneys and the account to sort out how to best structure this. And then so we lost cash flow for about a year. And then we got started to get checks and we got all of our paperwork to get transferred into new um, property. And to start getting cash flow from that new property. So there's a one year transition, no cash flow. And then we end up, and it's funny, I'm still in that opportunity today. Still oh,
0: really? I was yeah. about to ask what happened with that, with the second opportunity. And if you know, have you made any money on, on that opportunity?
1: So what's interesting is that that opportunity, I forgot to mention. In fact, it was a second investment I made with them. I already had money in that second deal, which I really liked. And then they just basically gave me the equivalent equity on top of it to plus it up. And that, I mean, they did that whether or not you were invested in this deal, but they had the room in it. So I was familiar with that property and we were in it at a fantastic basis. So I think, you know, please don't quote me on this, but I think we got into that property roughly at about an $8 million valuation, including some of the upfront uh, deferred maintenance. I'm roughing it out and I haven't checked. The last I checked the property, I'm guessing it's probably worth 13 to 14 million right now, which is huge because leverage, it's a great return. So we ended up in a great position. That property I've been in has been, Basically, 100% occupied, you know, give or take, every year since I've been in with them.
0: And and yeah. I, I really like the the kind of the outcome and and the solution that they've found because this is a pretty unique story. I haven't heard any sponsor, any syndicator that has done something like that.
1: I agree with you. I'm, now, so for me, I've only been through this once, so I don't have really a comparison. And I think it's very unusual for this kind of story to happen. So it's not like I've spoken with five other investors who've been through something similar. But I can tell you just like objectively, if you take a step back and think about it, what I would expect the outcome to be was that this is one of those 1% risks. Investors lost their money, just really bad luck, right? And by the way, if that would have been the outcome, I would have felt bad for the operator because they would have lost the recourse loan and they had the majority of the equity. And so they would have taken proportionally really big hit compared to us. Um, So this is definitely unique. And I frankly don't expect this to happen in in even the average deal that I'm in, if it ever happens again, like in terms of how the operator handled it. But I think the lesson here is expect 1% risks to happen because they can be diversified so that if it does happen and a bad outcome happens, it's not going to cause a huge problem for you as an investor, right? Make a bet on good people, and sometimes you get lucky and those good people will help you. But those people cannot help you if they don't have the net worth behind them as well. So if this person had no equity whatsoever, any other deal, no matter how good a person they were, they couldn't have offered this to us. So it's definitely a combination of a number of factors that made this really positive outcome.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think the story is great. And um, I also think that the insights that you have from from being part of this experience are pretty profound and and interesting. So I appreciate you sharing that story with us.
1: Oh, no problem at all. Yeah, I know it's kind of a long story, but hopefully everyone found it helpful um, on here and I think there's a lot of important takeaways there.
0: Yeah, of course, absolutely. It's kind of, uh, it's a unique situation and it's also, I think the situation is is interesting and also the solution is interesting. So that would definitely be helpful, you know, for passive investors and also for sponsors to kind of listen to and, and learn from. And at this point, you know, you've been investing for almost two decades now, um, 16, 17 years. What would you say to your 20-year-old self if you could look back and and give yourself an advice maybe even when you just started investing you're probably older than 20 but what would you what would you tell yourself
1: I would say two things for sure I mean I have many things but the top two coming to mind are start as earth, as young as possible I'm sure you've heard that many people have heard that but it's so true because it gives you a big advantage later in life um, and two is you know, cash flow can truly change your life. Something I wasn't familiar with until I learned about it. And um, it's, you know, and I'm not trying to sell anybody on this podcast on anything, but I'm telling you as an investor, it's amazing what it's done for me and the freedom that it's given me. Um, It's not easy to to build it up. It takes a long time. Um, But once you get there and you put the time in, it's amazing what it can do for you long-term.
0: All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, And Jeremy, where can people find you?
1: So the easiest way to reach me is just directly through email. Um, My email address is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at rollinvestments, R-O-L-L, investments investments with an S or plural, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. I do want to say I love networking with other investors. I'm happy to help people who are either experienced and new to network, to discuss other deals. Um, Really, and I'm happy to help in any way that I can with anybody. So feel free to reach out to me.
0: All right, great. Well, thank you um, for being on the show today. I appreciate the story and the insights. Definitely uh, a a fascinating story. And uh, I, I appreciate your time today.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it.